The best advice I gave anybody on crypto was back, and this was because of my friend Grant Williams in the summer 2021, get your Bitcoin off the exchanges because the exchanges look extremely hazardous, which turned out to be true. So it's just, it's such a high risk area with so many imponderables and unknowables. It's just, it's, I mean, I think they're great trading vehicles and I would probably use technical analysis. It, it seems to me that when these things get absolutely crushed and greatly oversold, there is a trading opportunity. And I think you've got to be honest with yourself. You've got to look at it objectively. And that's where I think, you know, look at the price chart. When you see the price chart just go straight up, that's a bubble. And it's just a question of how far it's going to keep going up. And you can either make that work in your favor or you can get destroyed by it. And unfortunately, I think most people get destroyed by those types of moves. It could be the biggest pool of capital on the planet, but somehow we didn't do it. And somehow we don't criticize our policymakers for allowing that to happen. Well, now we have to deal with that. Now we, we have to pay all these boomer retirement benefits without any money to do it. Where's it going to come from? And I think at some point that younger generations say, well, you know, I'm not going to have higher, pay higher taxes to pay for my parents' social security that is now, you know, there's nothing there. So it's, it's going it has the potential to create some very, very severe intergenerational strife. There's just no way the economy can possibly support that. Hello, and welcome back to the 14th episode of the Carshed podcast. My guest today is David Hay a man with over 45 years of experience in the investment markets. He is currently Chief Investment Officer for an independent investment advisory firm and writes an excellent macro newsletter for over 14,000 readers. The newsletter is called The Haymaker and is one of the few I actually read consistently. So when David said he was up for a call, I was ecstatic. He has an amazing ability to see the larger picture and I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. Hey David, how's it going? It's very good to see you. That's, uh, you know, we're what, how many time zones apart? Nine different time zones apart, but it's like you're right next to me. This is pretty cool. I know. And it's, uh, yeah, it's great to finally, yeah, it's pretty crazy actually to speak to you because I've been um, following your work for a while. And I mean, I was looking just quickly at like your, your previous kind of your jobs and that sort of thing. And you seem to be an unbelievably steady guy working like 11 years at one place, 12 years at the next. And it's, uh, well, apparently 21 years now at uh, Evergreen Gavacor. So yeah, I'd love for you just to kind of give readers a little bit of your background and I guess what you currently do. Well, my background. So it's pretty, pretty prosaic, really. I mean, I started as your standard issue, smiley darling stockbroker back in 1979 at uh, Dean Witter. And like you said, I was there for 11 years and then uh, went to Smith Barney for 12 years. And Ironically, both Dean Witter and Smith Barney wound up part of Morgan Stanley. It seems like Morgan Stanley's gobbling up the financial world. But um, you know, my goal was always to try to be a portfolio manager. But since I came out of college with a degree in cinema studies and filmmaking instead of in finance or you know PhD really? in economics, yeah, I was going to be a filmmaker, and that uh, that didn't work out. Uh, I decided pretty early on that being in the film industry and eating weren't compatible. So I, uh, I'd always loved the stock market. <laughs> uh, you know, if you can't succeed in filmmaking, you go into the stock market. Right? A, yeah. Everybody does, but no, it's a, say again, say again. Sorry. No, you, you, uh, it buffered out. You continue. Well, the, uh, it was a it was a fascinating time to start out in the financial industry because in 1979, of course, uh, 
we were dealing with a high level of inflation and inflation had been getting more and more out of control uh, really since the mid 60s. And in the first few years of my business, it got worse instead of better. Inflation kept going up, interest rates kept going up. But of course, uh, in 1979, something a little bit more significant happened than me joining the, the financial industry. And that was that Paul Volcker was made chairman of the Fed. And Volcker then proceeded to drive the prime rate to 21%. He created real interest rates of eight to 9%. And that, uh, of course, destroyed in inflation. It clobbered the economy at the same time. And as a result, uh, to this day, a lot of people think that he was, you know, heartless. And, uh, but I think he did exactly what needed to be done at that time. And it really created a 40-year tailwind for my career because I believed in, for that period of time, that we were in a disinflationary era and that any major sell-off in the bond market where yields would spike, particularly late in an economic upcycle, it was a buying opportunity. So it, uh, it really, it, it, it dominated my career for 40 years and it didn't change until uh, the summer of 2020 when the 10 year treasury note went all the way down to half a percent and the money supply was going absolutely vertical. And of course uh, we were doing full on MMT, modern monetary theory in this country. And I believe that was gonna create a lot of inflation. I believe it was gonna kill that 40 year bond market. And guess what it did. Which leads us on to your your largest piece of work, Bubble 3.0. And before we kind of we dig deeply into that, I'd love for you to kind of give like uh, as if like as if you were explaining to say your your son or your daughter what a bubble actually is. And then once we've kind of given in gone into that history and then your thesis of where we are now. Well, that's a very good question. I rarely get asked, but in my case, I would say it's my grandson or granddaughter. You know, you got to remember how old I am. So my, I actually work for my oldest son. He tells me what to do on a daily basis. Uh, but if I was explaining it, it, actually, I did have one of my granddaughters ask me here recently what to, you know, to explain what I did. And it was pretty cute. And, and it's, um, you know, I, I didn't use this example with her, but I'm going to use it now because we have an adult audience. It's kind of like years ago, they asked uh, Supreme Court justice to define pornography. And he said, I can't define it, but I can recognize it when I see it. And I think that same logic applies to bubbles, that it's very hard to actually describe a bubble. I mean, I can, I'll make an attempt, but I think you just can visualize it so much easier. And when you see the graph or, or price chart of anything, you know, whether it's a crypto or whether it's a commodity or whether it's a stock, and when it hits that straight up vertical type of thing, you know, you're in a bubble. I would also say that, you know, from a fundamental standpoint, it's when there's no fundamental justification for the price, it becomes surely a momentum event. And, and usually when there's a, a powerful momentum event, one that's significant enough to create a bubble type of uh, signature is that you have a narrative. There's, a, there's some kind of a story that goes along with it. And I mean, for example, you know, Kathy Woods, she is one of the great narrative spinners of anybody I've ever met in our business. I mean, she's really persuasive. And when you combine that kind of uh, power of persuasion with prices that are going vertical, I mean, it's just, that's catnip for investors. It's just very hard for people to resist that 
And part of the reason is that when you get involved in those kinds of things, and you know, there's the old saying, which I think there's a lot of truth in, is that uh, a bubble is a bull market that you're not invested in and that your brother-in-law is. Whereas a bull market is, is one that you're invested in. And, and I think that's true, that there's a tendency to rationalize bubbles if you're in them. Uh, and obviously, I think the correct way to play a bubble, and you know, if we're fortunate enough, we get involved in those sometimes. Hopefully they start out as something reasonable and then they take on a life of their own. And the proper way to deal with them, in my view, is to sell into them methodically. You know, we're, we're big believers, we should be big believers in the power of dollar cost averaging. I know with individual securities, it's, it's more treacherous, but certainly with sectors and, and the market overall, dollar cost averaging is a proven way to enhance returns. But people only think about it, if they do think about it at all, they tend to think about it on the buy side, but it's also true on the sell side. I think you can add tremendous value to returns over time by following a dollar cost averaging sell approach. And particularly when you get into these bubble environments, uh, but people will do that. What do they do once, once they get caught up in something, whether it's crypto or, you know, a profitless tech company, uh, you know, maybe a, the largest EV company on the planet to name one fairly specifically, uh, they tend to buy more as it goes up and up because they get instant gratification and humans love instant gratification, right? It's a confirmation that you're right. Mm. And unfortunately, and, and it works for a while, but unfortunately it becomes a, tremendous sinkhole for wealth because you're constantly buying at higher and higher prices. And at some point, you know, that, that parabolic move has the flip side and it goes the other way. And so people, instead of just losing profits, they end up losing real money. And, you know, that's why when you look at, you know, say an ARC fund where from inception, the performance numbers are still very, very good. But when it was, in, when it started, it was a very small fund as it became larger and larger is when, you know, again, for a while, the numbers were still outstanding, but eventually, you know, going back to 2021, it rolled over way before the market. And that's when it had attracted, you know, tens of billions of dollars. And amazingly, it still attracts money even as it's gone down, which would tell me that, you know, perhaps the, the final flushing out hasn't occurred yet, but it's, uh, you know, I just think people use, they, they're, they're, Again, they tend to rationalize if they're involved, it's not a bubble. If they really believe in the story, it's not a bubble. It's a bull market. And I think you've got to be honest with yourself. You've got to look at it objectively. And that's where I think, you know, look at the price chart. When you see the price chart just go straight up, that's a bubble. And it's just a question of how far it's going to keep going up. And you can either make that work in your favor or you can get destroyed by it. And unfortunately, I think most people get destroyed by those types of moves. Mm. And I mean, especially like when the narrative is so strong, be it say like the internet is going to change the world or like crypto is going to destroy the banking system or whatever. And then people kind of put a bit of money in, see it doubles and they're like, oh shit, it actually is going to change the world. And then if you think it's an outcome so large as changing the world, then you can kind of justify higher and higher prices forever, essentially, because you're like, well, why would it come down? It's going to like do x y or z and i guess that kind of ties in like you mentioned bubble 3.0 and so what is bubble 1.0 and what is bubble 2.0 and then once we kind of have an idea of that i guess like how does bubble 3.0 then compare to these 
Also, a very good point. So uh, Bubble 1.0 was the tech bubble that happened in the late 90s, like you said, when the internet first captured everybody's imagination. <clears throat> and it's interesting that Bubble 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0 are all connected. And I'll explain that in a moment. So Bubble 1.0 pops. And you had a tremendous amount of pressure on the Greenspan-led Fed at that time from people like Paul Krugman at the New York Times, Nobel Prize winning economist. So I think that one should be revoked, but we won't go there. Uh, but he did repeatedly encourage the Fed to create another bubble, and they complied. They drove interest rates down to Great Depression levels in 2001, 2002, 2003, and it did create that, that bubble in housing that Krugman wanted to see. And he did, you know, once he realized, kind of like Dr. You know, Frankenstein realized what I what he created and that he better, uh, you know, start warning people that this wasn't going to end well. And of course, it ended horribly. And that's actually when I started writing my newsletter for the first time. At that time, it was called the Evergreen Virtual Advisor. Now it's under the Haymaker banner where we create Making Hay Monday. Uh, and then we also do our highlight reel on Fridays. But anyway, that, that was the first time I, I really wanted to go on record in writing with repeated warnings that this was going to end very badly. And as I saw these mortgage products being created and you know, all the, the packaging up of the, the CDOs and the CDO squared and taking triple B, well, I'm sorry, subprime mortgages, making them into triple B, but even triple A rated uh, different tranches. It, it was just, it, it looked like an accident waiting to happen. A huge financial accident, which of course it did turn out to be. It almost crashed the global financial system and required uh, the TARP, you know, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, which the government actually made a lot of money on. And back in 2008, when they were first doing that, 2009, I was telling my, my readers that this thing is going to be a huge moneymaker for the federal government. Now, if you wanted to make an outlandish and controversial prediction, that would really get people upset. That was it, because everybody was convinced that it was just a giveaway to the big banks, and, and yet it was a huge taxpayer windfall. But that's another story. Uh, unfortunately, the government didn't do that same thing in the COVID bailouts. They didn't get this because the reason the government made so much money back in 2008, 2009 on TARP was because they took warrants on these bank stocks. So the bank stocks were you know blown to nothing. So the government was, they don't very often do something smart, but they did. It was actually a reprise of what Lee Iacocca uh, or what the government had done with Chrysler. And Lee Iacocca came in to rescue it, but the government took warrants on Chrysler and made a killing. It's a good model. I mean, if, you, if you've got to bail out companies, you know, get some kind of equity kicker. And it's, a, it's an interesting combination. And once you come in there and you cure the financial system with the government's unlimited balance sheet, then you instantly create a winner. And that's what they did. But... Unfortunately, what they also did, and frankly, I think if they'd done that and done that early on, they wouldn't have needed to do QE, I call it the ocean liners, QE1, QE2, QE3, QE4, all the quantitative easings that culminated in 2019 with the repo intervention. And then I guess you could say the ultimate crescendo, which was MMT during COVID. But they wouldn't have had to do all that stuff if they had just prevented the meltdown of asset prices in 2008. Now, interestingly, Fast forward to the spring of 2020 when COVID is raging around the planet and the financial markets are imploding, the Fed did something that I had been predicting they would do. And again, I got a lot of negative pushback on this, which was that they would actually buy corporate bonds. And they did. 
they stepped in and they bought corporate bonds. And when they did, the day they announced that was basically when we went all in. To us, that was the ultimate green light that the bear market was over and we're going to get a tremendous rally, even though the COVID news got worse, not better for months and months. So they, uh, you know, that was a very powerful and effective intervention, which required very little money. I think the total amount that they invested you know, during that period of, you know, in corporate bonds was something like $20, $30 billion, as opposed to the trillions and trillions and trillions of Kiwis that they had to do. So, I mean, there, I guess my point there is there are effective and uh, targeted interventions versus those that are, you know, where you just kind of spray the system with money and you hope it works. And those have a lot of unintended consequences. So that reaction to bubble 2.0 of creating those trillions and trillions of dollars of QE that culminated in MMT created bubble 3.0, which I'd say was the bubble of every, the biggest bubble of all time, the everything bubble. So prices went nuts on just about everything with the exception of energy and some other hard assets. But uh, that's when you had what I would call the crazy overpriced stocks, the cops. Uh, you were alluding to this earlier, profitless tech companies went, you know, they went crazy and NFTs and SPACs and cryptos, of course. And that's when Dogecoin got up to $88 billion market cap on something that the creator kept saying, it's worthless. <laughs> it's worth and then you had all the permutations and it, I just don't think we'll ever, ever go through another period that is was will be as absolutely deranged as that one was. I think it will go down in, in history as wow. the ultimate speculative mania. And it, uh, you know, I think that at the very epicenter of that were bonds, which you might think would be an unusual uh, speculative instrument. And it was in a way, because it was more of an indirect uh, instrument and in that as you, as you got interest rates negative through much of the world, there were 17, 18 trillion dollars worth of negative yielding bonds. And even in America, which didn't go full on negative, we did get down to you know, virtually zero with short term rates. So it created all these asset bubbles. When money is, is just freely available and where you're being paid to borrow money, you're going to get all kinds of pricing distortions with asset prices. You had home buyers in Denmark that were getting paid to take out a mortgage. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland would create, not supposedly not you know, the, the monetary leaders of the planet Earth. So it was uh, it was epic. It was historic. And that's why I think that to expect the relatively minor amount of damage that we've had so far to be the only, you know, the complete payback for that kind of speculative excess is, is naive. I think it's, I think we've got much further to go and we're starting to see that with what's happening to, to prices like with office buildings, which are down 25% and still falling. And obviously there was tremendous carnage in a lot of stocks last year, but now we're getting kind of an echo bubble. And you know, people believe that we're in a new bull market and a new bull market in technology. Yet you look at the composition of the S&P's advance in the first quarter, it was up 7% a little bit, a little bit over 7%. And yet 95% uh, of that came from 10 stocks. 90% came from five stocks. It's extremely narrow, which is not a healthy sign either. So long-winded way of saying, you know, if you look at bubble 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, they're all connected. And each one is kind of more intense than the one that went before and more dangerous because there tends to be more and more leverage involved with each one of these bubbles. 
You mentioned the government kind of stepping in and obviously gaining equity and bailing people out and at the same time, obviously making a fair amount of money themselves. And I was wondering, like, is there what gives you the confidence that, say, Bubble 3.0 was, say, the final, the biggest and the biggest and baddest and final one and that they couldn't they couldn't do the same thing again and, say, create a Bubble 4.0, which ended um and yeah i guess i mean like what are the probabilities of that and what's stopping that from happening well once again very good question and it's possible uh i think what's what's happened it's different is just the leveraging up of the of the balance sheets of the western governments has gotten so extreme that it's hard for them to keep playing those games now you could say, well, what if bubble 4.0 is in, you know, really looked at in nominal terms? And I guess that's fair to say. I think in, and that's a really uh, actually a critical point is a lot of times when we, we see a bull market, it, a lot of that is kind of a money illusion that if you were to deflate it by, say, the price of gold, these bull market moves are much less mm. impressive. I mean, some of the greatest stock market returns have been from countries like Zimbabwe over the last 20 years in Zimbabwean dollars. But when you use something like gold as your ultimate benchmark, you know, they've been in bear markets. So where I'm going with this is that I think that bubble mm -hmm. 4.0 could be uh, pretty spectacular in terms of nominal pricing, but not spectacular in real money. And the closest thing I think that we have to real money is gold, it's not perfect. But it's, uh, you know, somebody once said it's been in a 5,000 year bubble. I think anything that can be in a bubble for 5,000 years must have some special attributes to it. Uh, so I think that's what we could have. So we could see that, you know, the S&P is 40,000 in 10 years or by the end of the decade. But, you know, for adjusted for the current price of gold, it might be below 4,000 on the current S&P. And that would be a very extreme outcome that would imply almost hyperinflation, which I don't think we're going to have in the U.S., but I do think we're going to have a lot more inflation than we've had for the last 40 years. I think it's going to be a decade more like the 1970s, because I think that really the only way that these heavily indebted Western governments can get out from under, especially the U.S., which, you know, if you compare the U.S. to Japan, where Japan's got much more government debt, much higher government debt than America, but they owe it to themselves. And also Japan is a huge creditor country. So they have you know, $7 trillion or so that the world owes them, whereas the U.S. is a massive debtor country. And we keep running trade deficits. So we keep getting, so it's this twin deficit thing it really doesn't get much attention anymore. It used to be a big bugaboo. The idea that you run trillion dollar trade deficits with trillion dollar federal uh, budget deficits, I mean, that's, that's pretty terrible. And you keep doing that year after year. And then when the kindness of strangers starts to run out, which we're seeing. So as I think you're aware, uh, the central banks, foreign central banks have been actually divesting treasuries for years. And what are they buying? They're buying gold. Last year was the second largest, uh, saw the second largest activity buy activity on the part of foreign central banks of gold. So you're, you're kind of seeing these guys wake up. And actually, it's interesting. The last year, the only year that was bigger was 1967. And that's when the fiat dollar was, I'm sorry, I should say, not say fiat dollar, but the Bretton Woods dollar 
which was at that point still backed by gold. If you were a foreign, you had to be a foreign entity to be able to convert your dollars to gold. And that was, uh, you could say they were getting wind of the fact that that window was going to shut, which Nixon did in 1971. But it was actually illegal back then for U.S. and private investors to hold gold. It was until 1975. <clears throat> so my point is, I think we're getting to a period where these central banks are once, foreign central banks are once again sniffing out that there's uh, trouble coming for the fiat dollar. And at this point, it is a total fiat currency. I think ultimately it won't be. I think ultimately it will get guaranteed by hard assets to restore confidence in the dollar. I think it's going to get that bad at some point. And I think this is the year when we're going to have you know, what I've been calling the four Fs, which is the federal fiscal funding fiasco, where they just, you know, basically you have the, the bond market seize up, where you could have failed auctions, failed treasury auctions, at least at the longer end, and a real buyer strike. And I, that seems outrageous. Odds are it won't happen, but yet you look at the amount of money that the federal government needs to finance this year versus, say, a year ago, and the, the delta, the change could be something like three to four trillion because of expanding. Mm -hmm. So if you didn't, don't know this, in the first six months of this fiscal year, the federal deficit's 1.1 trillion. That's basically a $2 trillion annualized rate. And you've got the Fed that's in QT rather than QE. So they're selling, not buying government debt. And you've got the aforementioned foreign central banks offloading. So it's, it's I just don't know how you're going to get enough buyers to show up and especially at a 10-year treasury that's three and a half percent, which is actually below the Fed's own inflation rate right now. So it's a, you know, despite the market's uh, complacency currently, I think it's a very dangerous situation. Mm. I mean, in this scenario, so obviously like the stock market coming down, tax receipts probably can come down, but at the same time you have high interest rates, so they're going to have more interest payments to pay, and you still have all these other expenditures in their budget as well. And so, I mean, in terms of kind of thinking about the pain and what could happen, I mean, into, like, say, say, for example, they do have a failed auction or they can't, they can't find the buyers, then obviously their only choice, I guess, they have is to step in and resume QE, to resume buying bonds themselves then would you say like that is then resuming some form of bull market, but more in the nominal terms? Um, and I guess that's when like, is does bonds ever become a thing that you want to own again? Or are you always just opting for gold in that scenario because it's only a short-term fix? Well, I wouldn't say just gold. I, I think just hard assets in general. I think the key thing is invest in scarcity things central banks can't print, things that the world really needs to run. And, you know, that's where I struggle with the cryptos is I just don't see them as really being essential. Whereas oil and gas, despite all the, the ESG negativity towards oil and gas, they are essential. Uranium is essential. Uh, so I, I, I think you want to look for where are you going to have shortages? I don't think you're going to have any shortages of treasury paper. My friend Simon Mikhailovich calls them candy wrappers, you know, treasury bonds, where they can just be created at will by the Fed and by other central banks. So I think that's a problem. I think that they can be bonds can be trading vehicles at times. And when the yields you know, spike out and it can do a little bit of duration extension, but you better not overstay your welcome. I think it's to be a very it's a very tactical move or <coughs> excuse me, or I think there's maybe a little more appeal <coughs> is with the uh, maybe the three to five year 
in the treasury market where you can lock in the yield because I do think the Fed is going to be cutting rates fairly dramatically at some point. And so for a while, you might actually get a little bit of appreciation on three to five year maturities. And you're probably not going to get the same degree of buyer strike there that you're going to get with the longer term bonds. But I think, again, it's a very near term uh, opportunity where you're going to have to be very dexterous as opposed to where the trend is really your friend with things like oil, where I think oil is ridiculously undervalued. And you can even go out in the futures market and buy oil and you know, it comes due in two years or you get delivery in two years at a discount from where it is today. It really should be the opposite. Inventories are shockingly low. Uh, I, I think you could easily see oil well over $100 a barrel later this year. And I think that's something people are not prepared for. So I do think that this could be a recession where you actually see two things that don't normally happen happen, and that's is long-term treasury rates going up rather than down from this level, from a three and a half on the 10-year, and oil prices going up and going up significantly in a recession, which typically doesn't happen, but it has happened in the past. It's, it's not as much of a, a binary situation as people think it is. But there's just a shortage of oil that is uh, really going to become quite shocking and, and increasingly apparent. It's been heavily obscured by the releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve by the Biden administration, as you're aware. And I think that's one reason why the why OPEC said enough. We're cutting. We can offset what you've you know you've artificially that supply you've artificially created. I wanna I wanna touch into the kind of the renewable energy aspect side and its play in this bubble, and then also come in how that ties to oil. But before we go there, I'd kind of I'd love to just hear in terms of like how you see this, I guess, sort of playing out. So like let's say the scenario which like they can't keep down the price of oil, the price of energy, these gas commodities, and even say in a recession, they're still kind of trending up. And then at the same point, they have no choice but to cut rates, say, with inflation still high, and they have to do that. I mean, how does that play out in terms of for the dollar? And like, I guess like the US in and of itself as well, is still in a better position than many other central banks. Like, what does it look like in the country? And what can they, what decisions can they actually make? And how far, I guess, like, what is the kind of the worst case scenario? And what would be the better case scenario? in which this could play out, say, over the next five to 10 years? I think if you go far enough out, things will correct. And, you know, I say this almost every time I'm interviewed these days is that I'm very bullish on the 2030s. It's the 2020s that worry me. But I think even in the 2020s, mm -hmm. if you're bullish on the right areas, you'll do just fine. And I think the the analogy, the real world analogy for that was what happened in the 1970s. If somebody recognized what was happening in the early 1970s and they positioned their portfolios properly, they did swell. Now that meant having a lot of hard assets during that period of time because you had pretty much negative real yields. Now there were times where real yields went positive and there were buying opportunities with longer bonds, but they were very short lived. And I think that's exactly the situation that we have now. And of course, we had a much lower debt level so that by the time 1979 rolled around and Paul Volcker was in there, the debt to GDP, federal debt to GDP was only 25%. You know, now you put a one in front of that, 125%, and it's very difficult to drive interest rates up to a level 
that would actually inhibit inflation without crashing the system. So here's the payback from bubbles 1.0, mm. 2.0, 3.0, and all the responses to those, which have created this incredible vulnerability, uh, fragility of the financial system. I mean, just we we saw that. I mean, it's amazing how quickly people mm. forget. Just you know, what was it six weeks ago when these banks started going down, and and basically it forced the Fed to go back into a de facto QE mode. I know it wasn't exactly QE because they're charging a you know high interest rate for the banks that are going to the discount window, for example. But still, it shows that when, I mean, I think that was a revealing event that kind of, you know, it heavily validates what I've been describing, which is that when push comes to shove and it's a question of, okay, do we continue to try to control inflation or do we cave in to maintaining financial stability? The Fed will cave in and maintain financial stability. Uh, my great friend and partner, Louis Gobb, believes that's now the third mandate of the Fed is maintaining financial stability. I think he would also say there's a fourth mandate, which is likely to come out too, and that is to fund the federal government. So they got a lot of mandates. And you know, I think it's a classic example of mission creep. You know, It's hard enough to try to maintain uh, low unemployment and low inflation. I mean, the two kind of fight each other, right? If you get it, and that's where the Fed is right now. They're trying to get inflation down. Mm. And to get inflation down, they need to get unemployment up. But then you start putting in financial stability and funding the federal government. I mean, it's talk about Mission Impossible. I mean, I don't think Tom Cruise could handle that one, mm. much less Jay Powell. I mean, I've heard kind of the idea of sort of financial oppression and just letting basically how letting inflation run high enough above um, actual yields and sort of just inflating away the debt in that way. I mean, how real of a, like how possible of a scenario is that? And like, I mean, like once again, like what is, is there any way out for them beyond that or like some mass restructuring? I don't think there is, but I think they have to play a credibility game. I think, you know, plausible deniability, whatever way you want to say it. I think that part of their, their strategy or their gambit needs to be that they convince the world that they're really serious about fighting inflation. But we don't have to create some kind of scenario that is a figment of your imagination or my imagination. We just have to look back at history. They did it. They did it very successfully from the end of World War II until when Volcker came in. Mm. That's when there was a lot of, for a while there, there was overt suppression of interest rates. There was uh, Operation Twist, the very first time the Fed basically tried to uh, force longer-term interest rates down. And I think we will get an updated version of Operation Twist. And I think for a while it'll work, because you think about it, there's tremendous demand right now for short-term treasuries, right? The one-year T-bill yield is 3.5%. The three-month T-bill yield is 5 which is pretty bizarre. I mean, that's, that's a very steep yield curve from one to three months. But it's, you know, the debt ceiling fears are in there. Mm -hmm. But they're, um, I think they have to do something to convince the bond market not to totally give up on you know, providing financing to the federal government. I think for the Fed to do it all and go full on debt monetization like a, you know, a Zimbabwe did or Venezuela has done, Turkey has done to a certain degree, they don't want to go there for obvious reasons. So they're going to play a very convincing game that they that it's still the economic paradigm and fiscal monetary paradigm of the last 40 years, but it's not. 
they're really in an impossible situation, but they can't admit that. So it's going to be a very, mm. uh, very exacting, a very complex cat and mouse game they play with the bond market. So it's important for Powell to, to make it look like he's got this inflation thing under control. But I just don't see how he can really pull it off. Hmm. Which, I mean, I guess it's a nice little runway into kind of one of the larger reasons why he can't pull it off in terms of the shortage of oil and just generally useful and scarce commodities. And I think the first time I kind of heard about this, well, the one, the kind of the idea of like a commodity cycle and what causes it. And then also, I guess, kind of the short, the shortfalls with renewable and the kind of the push for green at the moment and how that can affect us in terms of the inflation that it can cause. And I'd love for you to kind of give your overview first on, I guess, kind of renewables and how it kind of plays a part in this bubble and potentially makes life harder for the central bank and then pivot yeah, into thank oil. Thank you for that segment. There. That's good because actually, ironically, the very first chapter of Bubble 3.0 that we published, we published it early. That's one of the nice things about doing it digitally. You can pull chapters out of sequence. So the first one we put out in our newsletter was in, it was either October or November 2021, and it was on greenflation. So that's a term that I think I coined. I, I hear it used once in a while now, not as much as a year ago, but this idea that the great green energy transition is quite inflationary. And I think it is. And I think the evidence is, is overwhelming that it is. And I mean, I, I get the appeal of renewables uh, to a point, and I think that's the critical part to a point. When you try to push them from more of a peripheral source of energy to the primary source of energy is where I think you get into a very dangerous and inflationary situation because you're, you, you're moving. And I've written about this, talked about this for the last couple of years. You're moving from a denser form of energy in terms of fossil fuels and especially nuclear. Nuclear is the densest form of energy. You get the biggest bang for the buck from nuclear energy to less energy dense sources, such as wind and solar, or even, you know, burning wood which is very popular to do in Europe these days, even though it actually emits more mm. effluence into the atmosphere even than burning coal. And by the way, coal usage is at an all-time high. So here, after all these trillions that we've spent on moving away from fossil fuels, we're burning more coal than ever, and we're also burning, at least in Europe, a lot of American wood. And some of it's coming from virgin forests, American and Canadian, and even Eastern European. I think there's just tremendous flaws in the great green energy transition. And a lot of it is by trying to do too much too soon and by being very unwilling to consider things like nuclear energy. I mean, Germany's shutting down their last three nuclear plants. How they can do that after what's happened with you know, losing their Russian energy sources and Nord Stream pipeline being blown up, it's, it's just stunning to me. It's just, it's just utter idiocy as far as I'm concerned but they just keep doing this stupid stuff. And you know, if you look back at the last 15 years, Europe has its energy production, domestic energy production has gone down steadily. And up until the invasion of Ukraine, its importation of Russian energy went up steadily. They were like, you know, mirror images of each other on a, on a, you know, typical X, Y chart uh, around, you know, the, the, the diagonal line, you know, one going one way, one going the other, but, Anyway, it was it was just utter nonsense, and yet they're still they don't get it, and so I, I think that's 
it's just it's it's baking in a higher level of inflation because energy is such a critical component of the global economy. So if you're going to have higher and higher priced energy, and of course part of this is that traditional fossil fuel producers don't want to produce, or at least they don't want to produce uh, on a long-term basis. In other words, they, they'll do these short cycle projects where they can get the, which is why the Permian Basin in Texas is so popular, because you have virtually no dry holes and 80% of the, of the oil and gas comes out, especially the oil comes out over the first two years of a well's life. Whereas if you go and you're going to develop some big new field in the Gulf of Mexico or up in Alaska, I mean, you're looking at 20, 30 years and they don't know what the market's going to be like, whether they'll be legislated out of business. So the net result is we've got basically 10 years with capital, capitalist spending starvation in the energy industry. And so that's creating a shortage situation. And yet the demand for energy continues to go up. And I mean, fossil fuel energy continues to go up. I already mentioned coal, but oil demand is at a new all-time high, despite the fact the global economy has been sputtering. And of course, China you know, had a virtual recession and now they're opening up. And so oil demand is going up in China. Oil demand is growing about 500,000 barrels a day per year in India, which is now slightly more people than China and a much lower oil usage per capita than China. Of course, China's way below the United States. So what people are missing that are they're not getting this mega bull market in oil is that the demand is gonna it's not gonna grow very much, maybe contract, probably contract in the OECD, the rich world, but it's gonna grow drastically in the developing world. It has and it will continue to do so. And part of it is that in a lot of those developing countries, say, well, yeah, they're going to buy a lot of cheap Chinese EVs. I think to a certain degree they will, but the grids aren't very reliable. So, and a lot of times those cars are more expensive than internal combustion engines. I, I just think this idea that oil and gas are going to become obsolete in the near term is ridiculous. I think there'll be more oil and gas consumed in 2050 than there is today, but there's things we can do. And one that's unheralded is if you go to the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency of the United States, their own website, and see how much U.S. air quality has improved over the last 50 years, it's unbelievable. The amount of effluents that come out of the tailpipe of a car today versus 50 years ago is minuscule. It's a fraction, a tiny fraction of what it was 50 years ago. And why did we not put the kind of effort into further reducing tailpipe emissions from companies like Corning that came up with the original uh, catalytic converter, and they now have a Dura filter, which you know is even more effective. To me, that seems a lot smarter than trying to go all EVs, where there are still, I mean, for example, in China, if you're if you've got an EV in China, you're actually polluting more than with an internal combustion engine because it's largely coal fired. Because you wow. plug it into the grid, the grid is sixty to seventy percent coal in China. So that really doesn't make sense. But from China, they've got to, you know, I think their their goals or objectives are different. I mean, they they don't have oil. They have, to, they have very little oil, so they have to import oil. They've got a lot of coal. Uh, they control uh, so many of the critical uh, great green energy transition uh, materials and resources. Uh, they're lithium processing. Obviously, they're highly dominant solar panels. So I think the West has to be very careful about what they're doing we could be making ourselves extremely vulnerable to China mm. for future energy. Mm. And I mean, I guess like the other, the other part in terms of 
the whole thing with oil and the inflation is that gr green inflation wouldn't be as large if it was more a matter of just like promoting renewables and trying to shift more. But I think the big like aha moment for me is like, then we're not just trying to do that. We're also trying to stop, actively stop oil, oil companies, all this kind of thing. And like, if you don't, if you don't reduce how much you use something, and you simply try and reduce the supply of it, then the inevitable result is that it's going to become more scarce and more expensive. So I mean, like, although say short term, as an oil company, it might be painful not to go out and drill more, drill more wells or something, if all of a sudden no one is going out to drill more wells, then at some point, there's going to be a supply crunch, because we're not coming down, we're not cutting down how much we're using it. And I guess that is when the price starts to go up, which we're starting to see now. And I wonder, like, is there I mean, is there any way, is there any argument for the case that, well, maybe you need that for the price to go up in order for, say, some theoretical innovation to happen with renewables? Because, um, I mean, it, on the other hand, it does seem like all it is going to do is, once again, as you see, we have coal, like certain coal stations coming back on. Um, and at what point, how bad does it have to get for us to kind of, loosen up and realize, oh, maybe we need to do and put some more focus into oil or gas and not kind of hit them so hard with all these windfall taxes and all this kind of thing. I think with a certain cohort of our political leadership, that answer is never. There will never be a set of circumstances that will really cause them to believe that we should create a more friendly environment for fossil fuels. I just don't think that's going to happen. Now, if, if us there are those that are a little bit more pragmatic that like what happened with the Biden administration here recently, where they decided, well, we do have to try to encourage some development of oil and gas, but I think it'll be infrequent and sporadic, unfortunately. But um, American ingenuity, I mean, human ingenuity is limitless. And I do think we're getting very close to the point where small modular nuclear reactors are gonna proliferate. Uh, I think your country, because you're based in the UK, will be one of the leaders there, partially because they have to. So, I mean, just if you look at what happened with Germany with LNG imports and import facilities, and they were very yeah. hostile towards LNG, the European policymakers, until the Russian thing happened. And then it's like almost overnight, they were able to build these temporary LNG facilities. And, and uh, you know, frankly, that's going to be a big positive for the U.S. natural gas industry because they're going to continue to need additional LNG imports. And the U.S. is now the largest LNG exporter. So that's, uh, it is funny that when things get bad enough, some of the decisions, the compromises that are made out of necessity, but it, it takes an awful lot. It takes a very dire situation to create that kind of a uh, acknowledgement of reality. So I, and I just think we're in this long battle where we're going to continue to try to put millions of additional EVs on the road, despite the problems with the grid, despite the problems with building new transmission lines that are essential uh, to be able to, to enhance the reliability of the grid. Building a new transmission line in America is almost impossible. I don't, know, I don't think it's too great in the UK. No, it's terrible in Germany. They've had a major problem right. trying to build transmission lines in Germany. There, there just are so many nonsensical aspects of this great green energy transition. It's, I mean, the, you know, just copper, copper is essential to it. Uh, a typical 
EV uses something like three times as much copper as a traditional auto. And there's not enough copper in the world as it is. Copper inventories like oil inventories are extremely low. So we're going to drive the demand through the roof, try to build a new copper mine. Uh, we just saw in Chile that they've nationalized their, their lithium mines. I wouldn't be surprised if they nationalized their copper mines. And when you nationalize things, what happens to output in the long run? It doesn't go up. I mean, just look at these energy companies that have been nationalized. You know, whether it's Venezuela, Venezuela is a classic example, and they've got greater oil reserves than Saudi Arabia, and yet they're producing, what, 700,000 barrels a day versus Saudi Arabia's over 10 million. And Mexico nationalized their oil industry. Their oil production is way down over the last 20 years. So, and it's, it, I mean, that's a trend that really hasn't got a lot of attention, is as these countries realize that they are the owners of essential uh, great green energy transition materials, there is a tendency to want to nationalize. And the impact on future supply is terrifying. So, I mean, at some point, I don't know, I think you're going to see the world bifurcate between those countries that accept reality and those that deny it. And for right now, I'd say America is still very much in the denial mm. mode. I mean, we can't even, we can't finish the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which is 95% complete to bring cheap natural gas to the Northeast where, you know, there's a real serious energy poverty situation. There's a serious energy poverty situation in your country. Last winter, I don't think those times are over. I think we're going to have another energy crisis in Europe coming up soon. A lot of, a lot of bad policies out there, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, it's not setting up to be pretty. And it, it kind of, it reminds, I don't know if you've read The, the Fourth Turning, um, but it does, it does seem that after this kind of, I mean, yeah, after these 80, 70, 80 years, however you want to call it, of kind of relative peace, we are entering into definitely a more crisis-driven kind of period. But as you say, like the 30s after that kind of do tend to be then, be like almost a restart and I guess also ties into kind of the hundred debt, a hundred year debt cycle as well. And one thing I wanted to touch on a little bit is kind Sorry, of- Sorry, did you say the fourth turning? Is that what you said? Fourth turning? Yeah. So you're yeah. talking about Neil Howe's theory? Neil Howe, the demographer? Yeah, I, his, yeah. his work is fascinating. And I think so much of what he's been predicting, we're starting to see really play out. So I think you're exactly right. And, and he's exactly right. And and, uh, you know, I think he's kind of, I, I know, in fact, I just read recently where he's kind of saying the same thing about the 2030s, that that could be a much better time. So these transitions are always very scary. and uh, But that's when you tend to create the, the critical pathway for the next boom. But I think we've got this debt overhang that mm. we have to come to terms with. And, and that's why I think ultimately we're going to have to create uh, whether it's treasury bonds and a U.S. dollar, both are backed by hard assets. Or, you know, one of the things that I brought up here in a recent podcast I did was the U.S. has got this. I mean, if you think about where is the wealth in this country, who owns it? It's mostly my generation. You know, there's still the greatest generation of few people there, but mostly it's the baby boomers that have, I don't know, 100 trillion. I don't know what the real number is. I'd, I'd like to know that. Maybe Neil Howe has done that work, but let's just say it's $100 trillion dollars. And as we die off, if you have an effective estate tax, not even a wealth tax, wealth taxes are, are tough because they encourage people to leave their country. But an estate tax, I mean, really, I don't pay it. My kids pay it. 
And if it was set at the right level, like 25%, you think about how much money the U.S. government could generate over the next decade, decade to two decades, it would create, uh, it would eliminate, if we could get our, our spending under control so that we're not constantly increasing the amount of deficits and accumulated debt, we could be very healthy financially in 15, 20 years. And I think something like that's going to happen. And I think it'll be in conjunction with uh, an energy miracle and maybe AI that is used, you know, it's a very dangerous technology, of course, but if it's used properly, that could be another positive game changer. Uh, and, you know, the medical breakthroughs that are occurring are, are stunning. And so I don't, I think there's a danger in getting into this end of the world mentality. I, I don't think that's proper. I think it's just, it's realistic to say we've got some really severe challenges and probably the biggest challenge that our country faces, and I think your country too, is debt levels that are just unsustainably high. Hmm. I want to touch on demographics a little bit here because, I mean, they're the kind of the big thing that no one talks about until all of a sudden they seem to matter. And I mean, like, say China, their population is kind of peaking. Like the US, like most countries' kind of population growth rates don't look good other than kind of a few select countries like, say, India. And I was wondering, like, how you view kind of, say, the situation here in the West, like in the US and like kind of the UK with the population and like what effect will kind of this aging population, um, like what effect will that start to have once again on, on, I guess, kind of the economy and just kind of like the financial monetary system as a whole, like will that, how much more pressure is that going to put on the kind of the debt system and how much more they're maybe going to have to put into sort of healthcare and all this kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, I'd just love to hear like, yeah, how are you kind of, how you think about demographics and where we are with them now? So you said, how much more pressure is it going to put on the system? And my short answer would be a lot. And it is, it is the number one problem. So the current reigning bond king, Jeff Gunlock from Double Line, guesstimates that the unfunded entitlements are on another $150 trillion on top of the federal debt on, on budget, which is about... 30 trillion, there's just no way the economy can possibly support that. So what it's creating is this generational conflict. I mean, at some point, the younger folks, I think it's already happening, are waking up and saying, you know, why are we going to deal with this debt burden? It's kind of like student loans in a way where you have this enormous future debt burden that the younger generations are going to be faced with because of paying entitlement benefits to my generation. And at some point they say, no mas, and we're just not going to do that. Now, mm -hmm. how will that play out? Will it play out in kind of a stealth civil war? Don't know. Overt civil war? I sure hope not. But I do think society is fracturing and polarizing. And there's those people that feel like the system has been just fine for them. You know, I'm in that category. America has been very good to me. But there's a lot of people that have been tremendously disadvantaged by what, and disenfranchised by the policies that this country has followed over the last 25 years. I mean, I haven't talked about this in a while, but I think one of the biggest scandals is that there really, there are no assets in social security. It's just a bunch of, again, candy wrappers, government IOUs. Why, why was there, why wasn't that funded like the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund, you know, with real money? 
Why was it not in a balanced portfolio of corporate stocks and bonds instead of more government debt? Imagine having a, a company, a private company, that funded its retirement plan with its own debt. People would say, yeah, that's crazy. That's, that's not any degree of safety. It's far from it. But that's what, and every time there was an attempt at reforming Social Security to move, now there was a thought about doing like Chile privatizing, and that's controversial, but didn't, you didn't have to go that far. You just needed to put real assets in the Social Security Trust Fund. And they didn't do it. And it was running enormous surpluses year after year, decade after decade. It could be the biggest pool of capital on the planet. But somehow we didn't do it. And somehow we don't criticize our policymakers for allowing that to happen. Well, now we have to deal with that. Now we, we have to pay all these boomer re retirement benefits without any money to do it. Where's it going to come from? And I think at some point that younger generations said, well, you know, I'm not going to have higher, pay higher taxes to pay for my parents' Social Security that is now, you know, there's nothing there. So it's, it's gonna, it has the potential to create some very, very severe intergenerational strife. But I think we're, I think we're gonna have a very tumultuous decade and unfortunately a lot of civil unrest and I just hope it doesn't get way out of control. Mm. Yeah, I guess there's no way of knowing really, yeah, how bad it can get. Hopefully it's somewhere down the middle, but who knows? I want to kind of talk into now, like as a, as an individual in terms of kind of protecting yourself, because obviously we spoke about hard assets, but I mean, especially like my generation, I feel like we've all been kind of brainwashed into like the Bogle kind of idea of just like stick your money into like the S and P 500 and kind of leave it. Um, and I wondered what, like what your thoughts are on that. And, and I guess one way you think it's going wrong, but how to kind of, how you rectify that in your mind? Because like whether it is just going for active funds, because I mean, like even with say active funds, like finding funds that say kind of have your theory and ideology and aren't just going for like your standard ESG investing um, and that sort of thing. Like how does say a young person at its simplest go about protecting themselves? And what is kind of wrong with, or what is your opinion on kind of the Bogle idea of just sticking it into the S&P 500 index fund? I think the biggest problem is it's done so well for so long, that approach. And like anything in the investment world that's done really well for a very long period of time, that tends to squeeze the future return out of whatever it is. <clears throat> so, I mean, this goes back to what I was saying about my career and how I really built it on uh, taking advantage of uh, the fact that bond yields were so high 40 years ago and there was kind of this residual uh, kind of inflation of bond yields because of that experience in the 1970s. In other words, bond yields were a lot higher in the 80s and 90s and even in the 2000s than they should have been based upon where it, inflation was. But it, there was kind of this muscle memory of, well, boy, in the, in the 70s bonds, 60s and 70s bonds were just terrible. Therefore, you know, stay away from them. So if you stay away from them, then they, their yields get high, right? The lower the prices are for bonds, the higher the yields are. And then at the same time, stocks are very much tied to interest rates so that when stocks are very depressed, usually interest rates are very high. So as interest rates came down, that created this tremendous uplift for stock prices. And again, it ran for basically 40 years. Now there were some, you know, there were some exceptions to that. And for example, the decade from 2000 to 2009 was a really tough one. 
So you did well with bonds, but you did very poorly with stocks. But one of the key points in my book of Bubble 3.0, which again, we got it out in early 2022 before this actually happened, was that investors were likely to lose on both sides of their portfolio using that kind of traditional balanced index portfolio along with bonds. And sure enough, in 2022, that's what happened. Bonds went down, stocks went down. People, that's why it was the worst year for balanced portfolios since 1871, 150 years. That's kind of a long time. So it's, things are already changing. It's no longer just me, you know, saying, Hey, you know, you better be, you know, listen to your Bob Dylan to the times are changing and they, they, they have, and I think they will continue to, I think for young people, you know, you're, you're going to be pretty well protected because your income's inflation adjusted. Hopefully, you know, the main asset you have is your home. And to the extent that you have financial assets, I would skew them towards, I mean, you can use ETFs, so you can still use index vehicles, but they tend to be more specialized. So, you know, that there's a uranium ETF, the Sprott, uh, you know, Sprott's uh, certainly one of the, the, the best at, at managing natural resource-based vehicles. The SRUUF is the symbol for their uranium ETF, and it's pretty depressed. The uranium itself has bounced around, you know, kind of in the 40, 45 range, and, and that's just way below a, a cost that is going to, to stimulate or incentivize future production, which needs to happen. China has 150 nuclear plants under construction or in the planning phase right now. So there's going to be a lot more uranium used over the balance of this decade than has been the last 10 years when you still had a lot of decommissioned nuclear weapons that were producing uranium. Uh, the U.S. is uh, really just produces very little uranium and we rely heavily on Canada and Uvakistan, which is obviously not a very safe venue. And so that's I think that's a great bull story. I think natural gas, which in the U.S. is back down around $2 per million per British thermal units, MMBTUs, is nuts, way too cheap. Uh, but as I said, oil, uh, it's just it's crazy to have oil around $80 a barrel when that's where it was 15 years ago, uh, 16 years ago even, and adjusted for inflation. And when you're looking at a dire shortage, you could have easily a two to three million barrel a day shortage by the end of this year. That is huge in the oil market. The oil market is about 100 million barrels a day. One million glut, one million de deficit, that's a lot. Two or three is ginormous, to use a very technical term. So again, I would just say, and there again, there's, there's uh, ETFs. If you just say, I don't want to pick stocks, you know, buy an XLE or another you know, energy ETF or buy the USO, which is the, the oil ETF, which actually benefits right now from the the structure of the market, it's called backwardation. I don't want to get too technical, but just trust me, it's a good thing. Backwardation is beneficial to you, the USO ETF, whereas contango, the normal is disadvantageous, disadvantageous. Um, I think the fertilizer stocks, which have been crushed, are look very interesting. So there's all kinds of ways a young person can position with their financial portfolio. But I think the, the main message I would have is don't despair. You know, this will, this will work itself out. I think it's going to be your generation that gets the cleanup for the idiocy of my generation. Idiocy and, and self-centeredness, which is appropriate for the me generation, right? I think we made just a, a series of policy blunders because we were trying to do things that helped us and helped get elected these vote-buying politicians who have absolutely mortgaged the future of this country, over-mortgaged the future of the country. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's basically the kind of the approach that I've been going with my own 
kind of humble savings and that sort of thing and that I just want anything hard asset-y. So, I mean, I'm lucky we live in the countryside as well. So we've got some like farmland, um, but yeah, like uranium ETFs, natural gas, like ML, like looking at like midstream oil companies and all that kind of stuff. But I guess like one thing which like has me questioning more is like in terms of like obviously having say a high percentage and all these kind of very commodity based um kind of commodity-based assets, I guess, like it goes against what like you read about in terms of like risk management and like how much of like everything you should hold, like commodities maybe should be like 10, 20% of like your investment portfolio, say. And even that, like like some people will say, could argue is like high and I'd love, and I like in your head, is that something that like in terms of that's just old thinking and like for you, like having these kind of scarce things is the safest thing and the majority of what you would want to hold aside from, say, kind of select other, maybe more value dividend um, paying stocks. Um, and so do you think we almost need to rethink as like a kind of, yeah, generally rethink in terms of how much of a portion commodities and like kind of, yeah, scarce metals, how large of a portion they should play in like a risk managed portfolio? Well, you raise a very valid point, and I really haven't spent much time on this in, in our discussion, but I write about this a lot. I think a barbell approach to portfolio structure is appropriate right now. So I think when you've got 5% on short-term governments, that's a great place to have a lot of money. Uh, you know, that could be 25 30% or even more of your portfolio. And there's other areas that are more traditional income producing that I think look attractive. I think the high-quality mortgage REITs. What I'm really, what we're positioning for now is a steeping of the yield curve. I think that's going to happen and fairly dramatically. And typically that would be good for longer term treasuries. I'm just, I'm, and again, trade those things. There could be some opportunities. I don't think a three and a half on the 10 years particularly attractive, but these mortgage REITs are yielding double digits. And yes, they are riskier. It's, you know, that would be a, you know, maybe a two or 3% part of a portfolio. Uh, but I think emerging market debt, and there's a number of closed-end funds that you can buy in the U.S., I'm sure you can in the U.K. too, where the emerging market debt is perceived as riskier than the U.S. debt. I think that's going to, going to invert. I think people will look at back and say, mm. boy, why was I not buying you know, Indonesian government bonds when they were yielding way more than treasuries and their financial situation was much healthier than the United States? So it's, when you say emerging markets... There's a lot of variability in their fundamentals and their strength. But in general, I think the uh, emerging market debt, uh, a vehicle like the Templeton Emerging Market Income Fund, TEI, would be, uh, that's one of my favorites, selling at a big discount from net asset value. It's been a dog for a number of years. But actually, emerging market debt is already outperforming treasury debt, has for the last couple of years. So it's showing relative strength for the first time in quite a while, but it's still very, very cheap. So again, there's ways to do this that are that are not just buying commodities, uh, but you know, acknowledging that this is not the same environment that we had from the early 80s to 2020. It's a very, very different one. So to invest the same way, I think is just, you know, obviously not correct. I mean, if the situation has changed that radically, and I don't see how you can argue that it hasn't, then your investment approach needs to change radically as well. So I wouldn't, you know, you get percentages and, uh, you know, it depends on your age and your risk tolerance. But I think having, I certainly don't think having 30 to 40% of a portfolio in a very diversified series of asset classes that have 
hard assets some way, shape, or form is out of bounds. But again, it depends on your risk tolerance. But I think the mm. there's kind of a, I think there's a, uh, a false sense of security in holding, you know, like to say, if somebody was going to be all in treasuries, you would say, well, that's very safe. Well, really, is it? Is it really safe to have, be all in treasuries in an inflationary environment? Now, if you believe we're not in a structurally inflationary environment, that's a different story. I think we are. I think we're going through a period where inflation is cooling off temporarily. But as we get to the situation where the Fed is going to have to step back in to keep things going, then we're going to realize that inflation rate is only down for a short period of time and is going to reaccelerate. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess like emerging, yeah, emerging markets was the other thing I was going to ask you about, because I mean, like Latin America and kind of these countries in a commodity bull run obviously do do fairly well, given given what they produce. And I guess like in an interesting way, like say somewhere like India is like kind of playing the emerging markets, but then also like they will struggle a bit in terms of with higher oil prices and that sort of thing. So I guess that's a way to kind of think about diversifying purely just from the commodities, but still being in kind of someplace growth. But I mean, yeah, I feel like, because I've obviously the most touted thing is like just by the S&P, but like there's a part of me that just doesn't want to put anything in the S&P 500. Because I mean, not only because of kind of this commodity situation, but also in terms of just like its returns relative to emerging markets and the rest of the world and how how much of say like the people in the US and like in other countries hold US stocks compared to anywhere else. It kind of feels like, why yeah, why would you ever put money in the S&P um, when there are so many signs that kind of point that it's like to an extent overdone compared to everywhere else? Well, I think simplistically that when if you had a choice between the S&P and an emerging market non-US index, I would take the emerging market index. And in the on the fixed mm-hmm. income side, I would do the same thing. I would favor emerging market debt versus developed market debt, particularly the US. So yes, I think that's correct. And it, it also kind of fits within the normal cyclicality of things. It's been a long, long outperformance cycle for US uh, equity in particular, but even US debt until recently, where again, there is a, there's clear signs that it's shifting. So yes, I think that's, that's well said. Okay. I want to touch on, as we kind of wrap up a little bit, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about gold and kind of the, I guess the kind of some comparison that people say between gold and Bitcoin and that kind of thing. And so I'd love for you, like in terms of gold, aside from its history, like with it, it's like, it's obviously got certain key properties which make it suitable for money. And like gold is one of those interesting ones, which like, although you want to hold useful things now, like gold in and of itself is not useful other than the fact that it's scarce and it doesn't, it doesn't change. Um, and, and yeah, and it's kind of like divisible and all these like classic properties of money. And in terms of say like Bitcoin, in what way do you say think they differ other than the history? And like, say for example, now, like a central bank is clearly not going to be buying Bitcoin. They're going to be buying gold, but kind of more long-term as like, say the dollar has trouble and kind of people just look simply for scarce things, which are divisible, easy to send. Like, what is it? What would you say is like the one thing about gold? Or that well, you prefer over Bitcoin, and then the one thing about Bitcoin that you just plain don't like for now, and why you wouldn't hold any in a portfolio. Okay, I'll start with the, the last part first, because what I do think there's going to be a buying opportunity of Bitcoin. I, I struggle with it because it's 
it's an odd security. It's not really a security. I'm not sure what how to describe it, but what really worries me about it is Tether. And it's amazing to me that Tether has not been busted yet because so many of these other things have failed. And when that goes, I think Bitcoin could really get blasted. I mean, below 10,000. Could be wrong about that. I, we got close, though, not too long ago. And Tether was still there. So it's. I, I guess the, the fundamental flaw I see with, with the cryptos is you still have a fiat on-ramp and off-ramp. Now, maybe that's going to get changed over time. I don't know quite how that works because we live in a world that, you know, you need to have some kind of fiat currency to, to live with. And, and maybe Bitcoin at some point doesn't need an on or off ramp. And at that point, I guess I'd get more interested. But I don't think we're there yet. So it's, and it's mm. just such, it's such a hazardous area. I mean, I've been saying this for years is that, you know, how do you know that you're, well, first of all, the best advice I gave anybody on crypto was back, and this was because of my friend Grant Williams in the summer 2021, get your Bitcoin off the exchanges because the exchanges look extremely hazardous, which turned out to be true. So it's just, it's such a high risk area with so many imponderables and unknowables. It's just, it's, I mean, I think they're great trading vehicles and I would probably use technical analysis. It, it seems to me that when these things get absolutely crushed and greatly oversold, there is a trading opportunity, but then they run. And personally, I've made a lot of money shorting cryptos through kind of the indirect plays, including fortunately for me, Signature Bank. Uh, but uh, there's some others, I guess I'm not mm -hmm. going to name it because it probably wouldn't be appropriate, but there's some other ones out there that with Bitcoin and the other cryptos get hit, it's going to go way down. One in particular where the guy is very, very vocal and has leveraged up his company to buy Bitcoin. So you probably know who I'm talking about, but let's talk about gold. So you already hit on it, the fact that when, when, when have you seen a central bank accumulating, other than maybe El Salvador or Nicaragua, whichever it was, accumulating Bitcoin? No, they don't they accumulate gold. And one of the reasons I think they're accumulating gold and so aggressively right now is the, the suspicion that these wealthy, so-called wealthy countries that are also heavily indebted, like the U.S., will need to recalibrate the price of gold at a much higher level to then back up their currency. So maybe mark up gold from 2000 to 20,000 and, you know, almost overnight and say, oh, by the way, now for the, and it would probably be, so as you know, in China, there's a renminbi and the yuan. Renminbi is internal, yuan's ex external, right? I think I have that right. But my point is, and this used to be the way it was with the dollars I mentioned earlier, there was a dollar which was in exchangeable into gold for investors, this is back in the 60s, up to 1971, and then you had the domestic dollar, which was not exchangeable. I think we could be going back to that again, where for international investors, they're allowed to redeem and get gold for their dollars, but not at 2,000, at 20,000, or some number like that. Mm. And I think that's what's behind some of this central bank uh, transition or flight into gold is as that as an optionality. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty good deal anyway. If you look at the price of gold and the people at Gary and Rosenzweig do great work on natural resources. And they allege that if gold was really at, at the same level, had, had the price increased at the same rate that uh, the money in the system has increased, gold would be at about 20,000. I think their official target for the end of the decade is somewhere between eight and 10,000 on gold. It's that's the kicker. You know, you, it may not happen. It probably would be good for society if it doesn't happen, but it could happen. 
And I don't think you're going to lose a lot of money with gold where it is now. So your upside downside is quite attractive. Then you get into the miners and, you know, some of those guys have just tremendous upside. That pretty much all of them have tremendous upside if you get gold even to 3,000, much less 8 or 10 or 20. So mm. kind of a long-winded answer to a pretty short question. <laughs> no, it's uh, yeah, a good answer. I mean, both of those, yeah, they're both things that I think of a lot and I ponder. And I mean, like, say, like, Tether, I mean, there's arguments where some people like, yeah, of course, short term pain, but that money has to go somewhere. Like a large of it probably just go into, say, USDC or to dollars in general. But like some of it might just be forced to go into Bitcoin. That's like that is the that is the most common pair in a sense. Um, and then in terms of well, yeah, like the off Bitcoin, another thing Bitcoin's like, got some special attributes for sure. I wanted you to be clear that it it has its scarcity, unlike Dogecoin, which can be just created at will. So and it's it's got the whole blockchain. It's got a community. It's going to be around. So I, I think it is one to buy on weakness. I just think the ultimate weakness would be the flush out of, you know, people call the stable coins. I call them the fable coins, like Tether being the most fabled of them all. It just, it seems to me a complete fraud. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being too harsh. They, mm. It's hung in better than I thought it would. So I got to give it that credit. It's it's withstood a lot of stress here over the last couple of years. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree. There's a, there is definitely a crazy amount of fraud, but it's just a matter of, yeah, I mean, it's like how far they can push it down the line and whether they can be okay. Yeah. I mean, who, who knows? We'll kind of see how it plays out. But um, yeah, I mean, I feel like I've covered most of, yeah, pretty much most of what I was kind of hoping to dig into. And yeah, it's been super, super, super insightful kind of speaking to you and digging into all this. And I mean, I guess like what kind of, if you could leave readers of like any, any kind of final thoughts or things to kind of ponder on or think about, um, like what would they be? Yeah, good point, because we did talk about this aspect, which is it's been the most powerful money-making tool I've ever come across. And I know that sounds like clickbait, but let me explain. And it has to do with something that, you know who Paul Tudor Jones is, right? Famous yeah. trader, one of the most famous head billionaire guy. And he's he calls what I'm going to describe range expansions. And I call them breakout and breakdowns. So what I mean, what he means is that if you look at a security, it really doesn't matter what it is. And it's been in a long-term trading range and, and long-term is the key. So if the trading range has lasted for a few weeks or a few months, it doesn't mean much, frankly. What we have found, my team and I have found is that at about the three-year mark, you get into a real serious, uh, I guess like it's, it's, a, it's a range or a band that if it's violated, it means something. So specifically, if a company's been trading between 20 and 40 for at least three years and it breaks above that, which I will say surprisingly right now in you know what is still a bear market, there's a lot of companies that are breaking above their three-year ranges. So they're having a range expansion to the upside. When that happens, it almost always continues to happen. So once it occurs, you know, if you do 20 to 40, it's going to 50, 60, you know, sometimes way, way beyond that. The same thing on the way down. I mean, look at the chart prices of First Republic and Signature Bank and SVB. Now, th these breaks were very quick. So you really had to move almost at the speed of light when they made their big breaks. But you would have saved a tremendous amount of money. Or another one is to look at a Credit Suisse. When Credit Suisse, that one, you had more time to react. 
So it's it's a huge way to save. I mean, just think of we've all had in our in our lives situations where we've lost a lot of money because something keeps going down. We go, oh, it can't go lower. This is a great buy. I'm going to buy more, and, and that can work within you know kind of within this band, within the range. But when it breaks below that, it is telling you something's wrong. Now the most powerful, and this is one of the worst mistakes in my career, was when the S and P broke out of its 13 year trading range from 2000 to 2013. And it was, it was in, it was in a 13 year trading range. When it broke, that was an extremely bullish signal, which I missed, you know, partially because I didn't fully believe in this whole theory that I've been kind of creating accidentally kind of stumbled on because I'm a fundamental guy, not a technical guy. Uh, but fortunately I did pay attention with Microsoft. Microsoft was the same thing, which I stuck with and hung with and you know, 13 years, it was in a trading range and it broke above that in 2013. And then it was off to the races. And one of the good things is you can pick up with, if you follow that system, you can pick up on companies that go from being value stocks. So if you look at Microsoft, it was the ultimate growth stock in the bubble 1.0 by 2013, after bubble 2.0, it was the ultimate value stock. It was trading at 10 times earnings and a huge free cash flow yield. Then it became a growth stock again. If you can get a company to go from a value stock to a growth stock, you make a lot of money. And these guys, this, these, this approach, uh, this technique gives you a, a way to filter and screen for companies that are doing that. And what's interesting, and I'll tell you another personal sad story is that I've, because I have a long short account with a lot of the companies that I sold short, I lost a lot of money because I didn't pay attention to that. Tesla was the biggest failure on my part. When Tesla broke out in 2019, I'm sorry, 2021 is when it really had the big breakout. Might have started a little bit before that. But anyway, it broke out of a long range and I ignored it. And I could have bought a fleet of Teslas for how much I, I lost on that position. I mean, you know, the old saying, hoisted by your own petard. I mean, that was just like, how could I have been so stupid? Well, I, I got religion. I learned the hard way that when these breakouts happen and you're short, you better cover because you can get annihilated on the upside. It's way more dangerous to sell short than it is to buy a stock. So that's, I can't emphasize enough how often that gives you a great, and the other thing too, that I was going to say is it, it same thing with macroeconomic data. If you looked at the unemployment rate, if you looked at inflation, uh, you know, just to pick the two probably biggest macroeconomic developments back coming out of COVID, it was screaming that we were going to have a, uh, tremendous growth in employment and that we were going to have a breakout in inflation. You know, that inflation trading range that it held for so long was violated very clearly in 2021. I just see that happening time and time and time again. So it's almost like fractals in nature where they, in fractals and mathematics, that they appear in math and they appear in nature. And so if people pay attention to that, I think they'll do really well over their investment career. Learn from my mistakes. It's a lot cheaper to learn from somebody else's mistakes than your own, right? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, sometimes you have to learn from your own as well because it's not enough. But uh, yeah, great. Good, good take. I remember I remember you hearing, speaking about that on the, your, I don't know if it was your last, but your Grant Williams podcast you did a while ago with him. Um, and it's almost, it's one of those things which feels so simple that you're like, surely not, like surely there's got to be more to it. But I mean, sometimes like, well, simple is good, isn't it? So yeah, thank you. Well, that's thank you so, so true. I just want to emphasize you're exactly right. You're so right about that, that it, it seems so simple. And that's kind of what I thought, well, I can't really work. I mean, I, I, 
even when I kind of watched it and was you know telling people about it, I didn't really fully get it and believe it in my heart. It, it's just, but sometimes mm. the best the best strategies are the simplest ones. Mm. And I guess almost the the least used as well, which is probably why they work to an extent, because everyone's too busy trying to find a more complicated tactic, which they think must must surely work better. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you, David. It's been great speaking to you. And um, yeah, see you. Thanks, Jesse. It's been great being on here with you. Thank you so much. Look forward to chatting with you again soon.